you have a Bible with you, open up to the, to the uh, book of Acts. We're so used to saying the Gospel of John, but this morning on Small Group Sunday, we're going to look at the book of Acts chapter 2. What we try to do is highlight every year, about this time of year, the small group ministries that God's given us here at our church as a way of discipleship and encouragement for all of us to be involved in practicing the one another's. And so what we're looking at this morning is Acts chapter 2. I've entitled the sermon today, Small Groups, the Beginning of a Healthy Church. Acts chapter 2, we'll look at verses 36 through the end of the chapter. We know that Luke writes the book of Acts, and he talks a little bit about how Peter's sermon went, and then here we go, we pick up here in verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord your God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need, and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with gladness and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Father, we pray this morning that you would help us understand this text in a way that we could admire and be challenged and therefore also apply the principles we see in how we live our everyday lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Are you an army of one? Are you a lone ranger? Have you come to accept the cultural myth that you should be independent and self-sufficient? Is it possible that you heard the slogan of being an army of one and you thought that it meant isolating yourself as a lone individual and rather than being part of a community and individuals who are united as one. Just as no one is an island, no one person is an army. Have you discovered that you can rarely accomplish anything significant in isolation? Perhaps you've tried, and at some point in our lives, we've all tried to do it alone. I remember growing up watching the Lone Ranger and just thinking about how this one guy could take down all these bad guys. And yet when you think about it, even the Lone Ranger was not a solo act. Remember Tonto, his faithful sidekick, the Indian friend who helped out the Lone Ranger? Have you forgotten about the Lone Ranger and his horse, Silver? I mean, they were a team. They were better together. Even a monk who has taken a vow of silence still lives in a monastic community. 
Studies show that people are healthier when they live in some type of community. This is partly why there are so many senior living complexes where the aging population do better when they live together. Not everyone has a social network to call on when they need somebody at their side. Many people feel disconnected from society and from life, and that contributes to a host of physical, mental, and emotional health problems. In fact, according to some recent medical studies, social isolation is as bad for your health as smoking, obesity, elevated blood pressure, and high cholesterol. Just being by yourself. You're like, you mean if I'm with other people, my cholesterol goes down? Well, yeah, I mean, we're just saying it's, it provides a general sense of healthier living, quality relationships. But when you live in isolation, then it can cause different types of challenges, right? One study I read said that school children, teenagers, new moms, immigrants, people living in remote rural areas, and even millennials who have thousands of friends on Facebooks, on Facebook often feel excluded or like they don't belong. And it can happen in a church. You could be right here in this church and feel like nobody really knows you. You're not really a part of what's going on. And one solution to that, I think, is being a part of a small group. And so this morning, I'm going to talk to you about small groups. And my goal is not to help you have a healthier social life or more friends on Facebook. All right, that could be a nice thing. But my goal is to help you love Christ more and to love others more. I mean, this is what Jesus said was the greatest commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, to love who? Your neighbor as yourself. And I believe these two commandments can be obeyed better by being in a small group than they can be by not being in one. King Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, recognized the importance of being together as he wrote in the book of Ecclesiastes, two are better than one. They have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has no, one, uh, no other to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Well, do you have someone in this church who will lift you up when you fall? Are you keeping others in this church spiritually warm? Are you living in a vibrant Christian community with true biblical friendships? Are you participating in the one another's of Scripture? If you are, you will not quickly be broken. This morning, I want us to look at how in the beginning of the New Testament church here in Acts 2, as we look at this exciting time of church history, I think we'll also see the early makings of a small group ministry. Warren Wearsby says on this text, quote, The Christians you meet in the book of Acts were not content to meet once a week for services as usual. They met daily searched the scriptures daily, increased in number daily. Their Christian faith was a day-to-day reality, not a once-a-week routine. And in some ways, that's what small groups helps us do, just to apply what we're learning, how we're growing, not only here, but day-to-day. And so I want to give you three truths this morning that will help shape how we think about small groups. And we can see that from the inception of the church, Acts 2, all the way to the 21st century church, these principles still apply. 
Here's number one. If you're taking notes, we have a sheet for you there in your outline. And the first point I want to make is we see here the proclaiming of the gospel message. The proclaiming of the gospel message. Look at verse 36. Peter says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, I know we're jumping in into Acts 2, verse 36, so your first blank here says the specific details of Peter's sermon. Let me just give you a quick summary of what's going on up till verse 36. Really, verse 36 is a conclusion of Peter's powerful message that he preached on that unforgettable day. And as you know, the book of Acts is an amazing book. I like to think of the book of Acts as a fulfillment of the radical teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ being put into action. It's like Jesus has preached the Sermon on the Mount. He's preached the Olivet Discourse. He's preached all these sermons. And now in Acts, the apostles finally start to get it. And then we see here in the early church, they start to really put it into practice. And so I love seeing what happens here in Acts 2. It's the, it's the day of Pentecost where we see an outpouring of the Holy Spirit just as Jesus had promised. And we see this special outpouring with these audible and visible signs. Remember, there's the sound as from heaven of a mighty rushing wind. There are tongues as of fire landing on each one of the apostles. There are the apostles speaking in tongues, which were known languages, uh, representing the, the outreach to all the Jews who were coming in for this special feast. And what was the reaction of, of the crowd who witnessed this day of Pentecost? Well, the, the, the chapter here, too, tells us that they were confused. And they were also amazed uh, they were confused because everyone heard the apostles speaking in their own language. And they're like, how could this be? We're from all parts of the ancient world, and yet we come here and we hear them speaking in our dialect about the mighty acts of God. And so they're confused. Uh, how could that happen? But they also marveled. They marveled at the fact that they rec- recognized that this was miraculous. These men were but Galileans, and they were speaking to them in their own language. And so they wanted to know what all this meant. And so Peter told the crowd that these men were not drunk, as they supposed, but it was actually a fulfillment of Joel's prophecy out of the Old Testament, which spoke about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And in verses 22 through 36, Peter gives his famous power-packed sermon. In verses 22 through 24, Peter insists that God has raised Jesus from the dead. This Jesus who had done mighty works and wonders and signs in their midst. This Jesus who was crucified according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And this Jesus had been raised up by God because death could hold him no longer. The Pentecost resurrection sermon that Peter preaches is stating just that, that Christ has raised, been raised from the dead. And then in verses 25 through 35, Peter gives a threefold witness of the truth of the resurrection. First, he talks about the testimony of David from the Psalms, and he quotes about how basically the Messiah will be raised from the dead and will be among us and, and will live eternally. Second, Peter gives the testimony of the apostles who had actually seen the resurrected Lord with their own eyes. And then third, Peter points to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit as they were experiencing on that very day as an evidence to both the message and the messengers of the gospel that Jesus really was alive. And now in verse 36, he caps off that sermon by giving this final point of punctuation at the end of the sermon. He says, let all the house of Israel know, therefore for certain, in other words, there's no question about this, 
God has raised him, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Obviously, Peter wants all of Israel to know that Jesus is both master and Messiah. Peter is proclaiming that Jesus was almighty God and the anointed one. Peter is preaching that Jesus is both God and the ultimate prophet, priest, and king. And what we see here is a response to this message. And this response to the message was revival. This response was unbelievable. It was a unique time in the history of the church where we see repentance and faith and baptism and the Christian life being lived out in a real, authentic, organic way. What an amazing thing that we see here in Acts chapter 2. And in fact, I'd like to say your next point there, your next blank, is this is the starting point of small group. The starting point of small group was they first gathered all together to hear Peter's sermon. And then as we read through this text, we'll see how they end up in each other's homes, having meals together, and even having preaching and teaching from house to house. Let me just say that this is where our small group ministry starts. Small groups are all about the proclamation of the gospel. Our small groups are designed specifically for Christians. Yes, you can invite your unsaved neighbors. Yes, you can use your small group as an evangelistic outreach. Yes, if you're searching and you don't have a solid faith, you're still welcome to come. But the true starting point of small group is Jesus Christ. Our common core is Jesus. What brings us together in small groups is our belief in Jesus Christ. We know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. We are not gathering together to debate this issue. We are not gathering together to debate the gospel. We are not gathering together to somehow include different faith claims. Our small groups are not ecumenical. Our small groups are not a mix of popular cultural beliefs. Our small groups are made up of Christians who love Christ, who want to take further the teaching of the Word of God and apply it in their lives. We want to be humble, we want to be loving, but we also want to be passionate and unwavering on the truth. We may look different. We may talk different. I mean, I'm from Georgia. How many of y'all are from the South, right? We might wear different clothes and cheer for different teams. I mean, sometimes I sit around my small group and look around and be like, only God could bring this group together. People from all over the country, different colors, different ethnicities, different special trainings and jobs that we have, and yet we're together in our house twice a month to talk about Jesus and to talk about his word and to encourage one another. I mean, we in small groups believe what Jesus said. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. In our small groups, we believe that there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. In our small groups, we don't want to be ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. So that's where small group starts. Just to be clear, does it start as a social club? Does it start as all of the UCLA fans go to this group and all the SC fans go to this group? All right, forget that, right? We're all Christians coming together to honor Christ, and we believe that people come to Christ in small group. We believe that there's people who come to small group, they think they're Christians, and as they hear the gospel explained a little further and a little more detail, it may be that that's where the light comes on. We believe the gospel message is clarified and it penetrates hearts at small group, and so in small group, we believe in proclaiming the gospel message. Number two, second major heading of the sermon is we believe in responding 
and repenting and receiving. Because that's exactly what we see happening here on the day of Pentecost. In fact, your next blank says the response of the listeners. Look at verse 37. Now, when they had heard this, they were cut to the heart. And Peter, and they said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? When Peter's audience finished listening to his sermon, they were cut to the heart. That word cut means to pierce. It means to stab. It means to cause acute emotional distress. It means to cause the feeling of sharp pain. I hope that's what happens to you after this sermon. I hope that's what happens to you every time you hear truth and you see the light and you realize you're still in darkness. And for these people, they were cut to the heart like that feeling in the pit of your stomach when you know you've done something wrong and now it's brought out into the open for everyone to see. Peter is calling them on the carpet, saying, you crucified this Christ who is both Lord and Christ. And many of these Jews realized at this moment that they had been deceived. They had been duped by the Pharisees and the scribes. They had been told that Jesus was insane. They had been told that Jesus was demon-possessed. They had been told that Jesus cast out demons by the power of Beelzebul. They had been told the lie, and they had shouted just 50 days earlier, crucify him crucify him. In fact, it had gotten so bad that when Pilate washed his hands before the crowd saying, I am innocent of this man's blood, see to it yourselves, all the people answered his blood be on us and our children. I remember reading that as a kid thinking, man, these people are crazy. I mean, they're about to crucify Christ and they're like, let his blood be on us. What a horrible thing. But praise God, for his grace, that these same people who made sure that the Lord of glory was crucified are now cut to the heart. They see Christ. Their eyes are open and they understand. And this is all a part of the work of the Holy Spirit, right? This is what Jesus had said in John 16, 8. And when he comes, the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. This is the mercy of God. This, this is to show us our sin and to show us the Savior. And it happened to this audience and it can happen to you on this very day. And then they, they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? This is the response that the listeners had to Peter's sermon. And it's the same response that you can have today in this sermon or in any small group setting. That typically there is only a limited amount of time here on a Sunday for you to respond to the sermon. I mean, we're done with the sermon, we sing a last song, and out you go. But in a small group setting, when we're lingering in each other's homes, talking about the Word of God and the impact it's had on our lives, then we can experience sometimes a great opportunity to say, well, what should I do? I mean, I've been in small group settings where I've seen men and women repent. I've been in small group settings where I've seen couples say, we need marriage counseling. I've been in small group settings where men have confessed their hidden sin, and I've seen them beg and ask other men for prayer and for involvement in their lives. This is what we want to see happening in, in all of our lives, whether you're technically part of a small group or not. This is just living out the Christian life. And so let me ask you, are you putting things like that into practice? Do you have a small group that you're a part of? Are, are you a part of other social structures like a rotary club or a garden club or whatever hobby club you have? I mean, if you are, that's great. I'm glad you do that. But you know what? Don't do that at the expense of not being a part of a small group. 
people in your life who really care for you, who have your back, people who will tell you the truth in love. Well, notice what happens next here in Peter's reply. The, the next uh, blank says the reply of Peter, verse 38 and 39. Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Uh, this, this verse, verse 38, it's loaded with good theology. Peter says, first of all, repent. That's the answer to everything. What's my problem? You need to repent. Right? I need to repent. Peter says to repent, to turn from your sin and to turn to Christ. Repentance is a change of action, originating by a change of heart and a change of attitude. Repentance, the Bible says, is a gift from God. Repentance is a work of the Holy Spirit in your life. Only God can grant repentance. Repentance is more than saying, I'm sorry, but it is a commitment to change as evidenced by results of the Spirit's work in your life. Repentance is the evidence of regeneration. Repentance is an essential part of your conversion. Repentance is sovereign grace working out in your life. And at the same time, repentance is a response commanded by the Lord Jesus and John the Baptist and now here Peter. I mean, Jesus said, Matthew 4, 17, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John the Baptist said in Matthew 3, 2, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Peter says here in Acts 2, repent. Acts 3, 19, repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. Acts 8, 22, repent therefore of this wickedness of yours. Acts 17, 30, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to, what? To repent. This is the gospel message. And just as Jesus taught on repentance here in verse 38, he also teaches on baptism. He says, repent and be baptized. Certainly you're aware of the Great Commission where Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Such a bold public act of baptism helps determine the genuineness of a person's faith. If a person is sold out for the Lord Jesus Christ, then they will do anything he says. You know, when I'm talking to Christians, trying to evangelize, hey, are, are, you know, are you a part of a church? What do you think about the Lord? Are, are, are you a believer? Yeah, yeah, I'm a believer. I'm a Christian. I like to ask sometimes just to test them, have you ever been baptized? Well, no, I've never done that. It already starts to show me just a little bit because true Christians truly want to listen to Jesus. And Jesus and the apostles teach so clearly, you need to be baptized. It's not your salvation, it's your sanctification, right? To be baptized here in the name of Jesus Christ is only for those who are true believers who have repented. It means you're abandoning your life and your sin and you're becoming a disciple and a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now please note here that the text says, every one of you, each Christian needs to be baptized. Not just pastors or elders or deacons or leaders in ministry. Every Christian is to be baptized. It's not good enough to say that, well, my dad's been baptized. It's not good enough to say, well, my mom's been baptized. It's not good enough to say, well, my brothers and my sisters have been baptized. My friends have been baptized. No, no, no. Have you been baptized? Have you been a true blood-bought child of God, if you are, you're a believer, and true believers follow God's word, and God's word says that you need to be baptized. What a great topic 
to bring up in small group, right? We had a small group this week of eight master's university students here for WOW Week. We had them in our home. We fed them a meal, and I went around the table and said, hey, I just want to hear your testimony. Tell me how you came to know Jesus. So I sit here, and I listen to all their testimonies. Second question I asked was, guess what? Have you been baptized? Two out of the eight had never been baptized. Then I asked, well, are you a part of a church? Are you a member at your home church? And would you like to become maybe a member at Grace Community or here, some one of the many churches here in Santa Clarita? I want to encourage you to be baptized and to join a local church. I mean, these are conversations not just for pastors and elders. We should all be getting to know each other, sharing our testimonies, talking about the fact that if we know Christ, have we been baptized? Are we serving in a local church? Verse 38 says, here it gets a little bit confusing, so I want to clarify something. Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of, the, of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. This verse has been hotly debated especially by those who teach in baptismal regeneration, which is the false belief that you're saved through baptism. Listen to me. You are not saved through baptism. You are not saved through sprinkling or immersion. Baptism doesn't save you, right? And so some would say, well, why does the text say you need to repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins? Well, let me clarify. Repentance is part of your salvation. Baptism is a part of your sanctification. Repentance is God's work in you. Baptism is your response to obeying Christ's commands. In this context, repentance would be a huge step forward for Peter's hearers, further demonstrating that if they were cut to the heart, then they're willing to follow the command to be baptized, which would be an outward expression of an internal transformation. And for these Jews, it would kick them out of the synagogue, out of Judaism, out of the covenant community of Pharisaical teaching, and they would face great persecution. So for us today, it's like, ah, maybe I'll get baptized someday. And this day, when he said be baptized, they were like, oh, that means I might be disowned by my family. I might have to sever all my business relationships. I'm going to be on my own. I won't be welcomed in the synagogue. But Peter wants to know, are you a true Christian? Because if you are, you'll abandon all for the cause of Christ. It's also true in this verse, verse 38, that that word, the preposition for, can also be translated because of. So this verse could be translated, be baptized because of the forgiveness of your sins instead of for the forgiveness of your sins. You understand that? It's just sometimes there's a translation to think about. Certainly, we should also apply the analogy of Scripture to say anywhere else in the Bible does it teach that baptism is necessary for salvation. And if it doesn't teach that anywhere else, then that can't be what this text is teaching. I would say in a similar way, Jesus called the rich young ruler, to demonstrate the genuineness of his conversion by giving away all of his wealth. Remember that? Rich dude comes to Jesus. I've done it all. He says, go sell all you got and give it to the poor. And he's like, I can't do that. And he walked away sad. Remember that? Jesus isn't saying the proof of salvation or the means, I should say, the means of salvation is sell everything you have. But he says it basically could be evidence if you're not willing to sell all that you have. So here in this sense, he's saying, hey, if you're not willing to be baptized, it may be that you're not a Christian because true Christians are willing to be baptized and true Christians are willing to give up their possessions to obey and to follow Christ. Peter also says here that if you truly repent, let me move on, he says that you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
Some think in this context that means you'll speak in tongues or do miracles. I think that that particular reference is a reference to the indwelling of the Holy Spirit to any genuine believer. Yes, in the early church, there were some who had the gift of tongues. We see it exercised here. Some who had the gift of prophecy. We see it exercised by the apostles. Some who had other signed gifts. But here, I think this is an indwelling Holy Spirit presence in any genuine believer. This is the promise that every believer will have the Holy Spirit living in them and will have power over sin, power over temptation, and true joy and satisfaction as you're filled with the Spirit and operating in His power. That this gift of the Holy Spirit does not come through water baptism, but it comes through repentance and faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Then, we see in verse 39, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord your God calls to himself. What we're seeing here is the promise is for every believing Jew as well as for their children if they will repent and believe. And this gift of salvation and filling of the Holy Spirit is also for all who are far off. This is a clear reference to the Gentiles. This is a reference to those who, according to Ephesians 2, were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And then we read in Ephesians 2.13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And so the beauty of this is that anyone whom our Lord calls to himself will be saved. It doesn't matter about your background. It doesn't matter about your upbringing. It doesn't matter about your culture. It doesn't matter what your parents taught you. All people everywhere are called to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so let me ask you this morning, have you trusted Christ as your Savior? Is he the Lord of your life? Are you committed to following his word? Have you been baptized? Are you walking with him in this life? Hopefully small groups help start to flesh that out. I can only do so much as one to hundreds. Right? But one-on-one, these kind of conversations allow us to hold each other accountable, to walk in the light, to rejoice together about what God's doing in our lives. We, we have been changed by the life and death and resurrection of Christ, and we want to embrace that change and to encourage each other with more change as we're being conformed into the image of Christ. And so we've seen here Peter's response of the people that he preached to were cut to the heart. We've seen Peter's reply for them to repent, be baptized, and receive the Spirit. And then third, or C in your outline, look at the results of the Spirit's work in verses 40 and 41. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Now that's results, people. That's people getting saved, people getting baptized, showing the evidence of following through, and then joining the church. Notice Peter here uh, preached the gospel, but it also says, with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them. This is, again, there's only so much I can do in a single sermon, but it's almost like, as we'll get into it, they're spending days not just one day, there's the starting day, the catalyst day, the kickoff day, but then we see them devoting themselves day after day. And if you're attending a small group on a regular basis, there are so many other words 
of continued exhortation that you could be receiving. You can't just get your fix one hour a week. We need to be constantly learning and interacting with each other, encouraging each other, and exhorting each other to put God's word into practice. And so Peter here says, save yourselves from this crooked generation. This word crooked could be translated perverse, means to be bent or curved or twisted. The original word is scoliosis. The idea here is that Jesus says, you, you gotta be saved out of that. It's a sovereign work of God, but he does command you. It's the balance of scripture. God does it, but he says, you must save yourself. Not that you can do it based on your own works, but in your response to the Spirit's call in your life. Jesus calls them out of an evil and adulterous generation. Unbelievers then were described that way. Unbelievers today should be described this way. We need to know that God needs to save us. We need him to save us out of the perverse world that we live in. We, we need God to save us from our own sinful hearts. I mean, Peter had already told them in verse 21, it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so there in verses 40 and 41, anybody could be saved, right? It's to anybody who receives his word. They, they could be added unto the church. And being added to the church here gives you the idea that they're added to the, um, they're added to the universal church, which is con consisting of all believers. We're in the, the, the holy church of God as believers, but there's also a local church. And so here, they're initially being saved into the universal church, but there's also the local church of Jerusalem, that they're becoming a part of that church. And some ask about where it says there, um, so verse 41, so many received his word and were baptized. Many will ask, well, how did they get baptized in Jerusalem? I mean, you got the, you know, you got the, the pool of Siloam. Uh, you have the Kidron Valley with, with the creek going through it. There's not a whole lot of water there. Well, if you've ever been to Israel and you've been to the southern steps of the Temple Mount, you can see how they've excavated tons of mikvahs. And mikvahs are like Jewish baptistries. They were set up for uh, the feast, three feasts a year, where Jews would come in and they would walk down into these mikvahs to be purified all the way in over their head, totally immersed. And they would come up out of these mikvahs and they would have a garment of praise placed on them. And they would quote to themselves the, the, the Psalms of Ascent when they would walk up the southern steps into the Temple Mount to worship God. And so I believe that these mikvahs, Old Testament Jewish ritual cleansing bab baptistries, were turned into New Covenant baptism by immersion baptistries, where these 3,000s got dunked. I'm not talking about sprinkling here, all right? We're Baptists here at our church to the core because the word baptize means to immerse, to dip. And so I think that all of these were baptized right there on the spot. I think Peter and the apostles had a heyday. Let's get all these people, thousands of them, let's get them down in the water. Let's get them up out of the water and let's celebrate what Jesus has done in saving souls from the dead. You guys don't seem very excited about that. All right? But that's, what that's what's happening here on this day. What an amazing day. And what I want you to see next, our third point, is that all this that is happening is to continue in small group. Okay? It's an incredible thing that happens, but watch what happens here, 42 to 47, devoting yourself to spiritual truths and practices. I want to show you how the gospel radically transformed the early church, and these new believers responded to the gospel in a radical way, and now that they've seen Jesus for who he really is, they're being changed into his image. It, it's unbelievable. 
how rapidly these new converts now are sold out. I mean, they put many of us to shame. Some of you in here have been a Christian for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 50 years. And I would put up these new converts next to you any day and say there's something we can learn from these guys. It's unbelievable how radical they got and how they lived. And so let's look at these 12 observations we could make about new believers. And let's just keep in mind that many of these observations could be directly applied and experienced to some degree in a small group setting. Okay, you ready? Real quick, I know we're, you know, we don't have time to go into deep depth here, but number one, devoting yourself to the apostles' doctrine. Look at verse 42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Well, that's the first thing they did. They were committed to good expository preaching, right? They're constantly learning. They were loyal and faithful and unwavering to the truth. They're committed. They're dedicated. They're pledging themselves to follow the teaching of the word of God. And the apostles are carrying out the truths of the gospel. I mean, they are preaching the word. And here what we see is a commitment of these new converts to, 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 to follow the teaching, to, to, to take it in. This truth is foundational for any church. The pulpit must be dedicated to expository preaching. And our small groups are dedicated to expository teaching. And that means you've got to be dedicated to expository listening. You get the idea? It starts here in the pulpit. It continues in a small group setting. And we're to be constantly devoted to the teaching, the doctrine of the apostles, which are standing, of course, on the cornerstone, who is Christ. And we've equipped all of our small group teachers. We've met with each one of them and trained them up as an elder team in the spirit of 2 Timothy 2.2. And what you have heard from me, Paul says to Timothy, in the presence of many witnesses and trust of faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So whether your small group is teaching a book of the Bible, I think we have two small groups going through 1 Peter. We have one doing Colossians. We have one studying somewhere else in the scripture. And then I think the other half of our small groups are doing a sermon-based discussion, taking this text, those questions that you have on the back of your sheet, and fleshing that out in a deeper way in small group. But one thing's for sure, small groups are dedicated to the teaching of the word of God. Number two, spending time in true fellowship. You see that there in verse 42? Not only is it teaching, but it's fellowship. I'm always amazed how many people are like, it's all about the teaching. Well, this says, yeah, it's about the teaching, but it's also about fellowship. That means you and you need to get together and spend time together, right? This word fellowship is the word koinonia. It means to have a close association involving a common interest. You know, fellowship gets a bad rap in our culture because it's kind of outdated word in the vernacular. People are like, what do you mean fellowship? All this fellowship stuff. Listen to me, fellowship is more than having chips and guacamole together. Okay? Fellowship is more than watching the big game together. Fellowship is more than just hanging out in a, in a common space together. Fellowship is Christian only when you're sharing Christ together. That's what fellowship is. Our, our common interest is Christ, and we share his word together. We're part of the same body, and so we get together. Yes, we can have fun and ball game and salsa and all that. I, I like all that, but it better be Christ is in there somewhere, right? Or it's just salsa, right? And so because we have a relationship with Jesus, Christians can have a close relationship with each other. Your closest friend should be the one who loves Christ the most not just someone that you have a lot of other similarities with. 
And in order to have that, you first have to have fellowship with the Father. That's what the references I listed there, 1 John 1, 3. You better have fellowship with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. Why? So that you can have fellowship with one another, 1 John 1, 6 and 7. We, we need to walk in that fellowship with one another. First, we're vertically connected with God. Then we're horizontally connected with each other. And this happens in a great way in small groups. Number three, breaking the bread of communion together. In verse 42, I think these four things all happen in corporate worship. The preaching, the fellowship, breaking the bread, and the prayers. Why do I think this one is breaking the bread of communion versus the common meal? Simply because it says that they devoted themselves. So there's an idea here, if there's something special... The early church had what they called agape feast. They would gather together for a meal, but they would also participate in communion, the Lord's table. You say, well, how does that work in small groups? Well, let me clarify. I don't want you taking communion in small group. I don't want you getting baptized in small group. I'm not saying it's a sin that I could prove chapter and verse, but I would say the precedent in the scripture is that baptism and the Lord's table were practiced under the oversight of an apostle, a prophet, in today's terms, a pastor or elder who is helping officiate that service and providing an opportunity to be a public proclamation of I'm in Christ, baptism, and I'm continuing in Christ, communion. And so here at our church, again, we, we would encourage our small groups, and they, they know this, but they don't practice communion in small groups. So how does that fit into the sermon? Well, I think we should still be talking about it. We should be encouraging each other to be baptized. I've talked about that a lot already. But we should be encouraging each other to take communion, get this, in a worthy manner. If you know somebody's in your small group and they're walking in unrepentant sin, our job is to lovingly come alongside them. And if it is brought to your notice that they're taking communion in church but not dealing with the elephant on the couch, you have a responsibility to lovingly confront them and maybe even bring us in to a step two of church discipline just so we can see what's going on. And that's a way that a small group could even be powerfully used by God to enjoy making sure that when we are taking communion together, we're doing it in a way that we're encouraging each other, holding each other accountable. Let me move on. Number four, praying. Praying here uh, with sincerity and dependence. That's what prayer is about, right? We're sincere in our corporate prayer and we're dependent on the Lord. There's a regular emphasis throughout the Old Test New Testament, Old Testament as well, on praying, right? Praying without ceasing. Prayer is a vital, important part of every church. Prayer is essential for the life of every believer. The early church understood the importance of practicing the spiritual discipline of prayer. And prayer often gets slighted. It gets pushed to the side. But in a small group setting, you have the opportunity to spend a little extra time in prayer. It is an honor to pray. It is a privilege to approach the throne of grace. I love this one quote I read this week. Prayer is the slender nerve that moves the muscle of omnipotence. And let me tell you something. God works through prayer in small groups. Our favorite thing to do, I think, in small group, in addition to teaching the word and fellowship and sometimes some guacamole, all right, our favorite thing is when we break up into guys and girls. We take all the men of the group over here, all the women of the group over here, and we pray. We don't just talk about praying. 
We spend time going around, getting a few updated prayer requests. Be careful getting prayer requests because it takes forever, right? And then sometimes I'm just like, hey, forget requests, just pray it. Whatever you're hurting about, needing help in, just pray it. Let's spend some time in prayer. And that can happen in a powerful way in a small group setting. Don't forget the words of Jesus, John 14, 13. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. I hope that you'll go to a small group for no other reason to be able to pray with one another about things going on in your life. Number five, being in awe of the work of God. Verse 43, and awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. This word awe means fear. This is a holy reverence. This is a respect for who God is. And notice how awe came on every soul. Every individual was in awe of the awesome work of God being done through the apostles. There were many wonders and signs being done. Now remember, we're not a charismatic church. So when you get together, if that's who you are, you may not necessarily hear people talking about miracles that happen left and right all day in their week. But it doesn't mean that we can't talk about miracles we've seen in Scripture Or it doesn't mean we can't say, wasn't that an awesome sermon? Wasn't that an awesome passage of scripture? Or let me tell you in God's providence how he answered a prayer in my life this week. I want to give glory to God of how I trusted him and how he came through. So I'm saying that there's the the idea of we're like that fine line between it's not like miracles dropping every day, but we don't want to be like, well, I don't have anything exciting to say today. I'm not in awe on God. You know, we should be in awe of who he is, of the gospel, and his work in your life every day, and talking about that, and fleshing that out in small group. Number six, being together in living your life. Notice there in verse 44, and all who believed were together. You could just stop right there. They're together. How about that? How about that for a small group starting point? Let's get together. They're they're believers. They want to get together. I love that. That's definitely what small groups are about, being together. Being together is more than just showing up on a Sunday. Being together provides a context to have real conversations and get to know each other beyond the highs and buys of Sunday morning niceties, right? This, This part of being a family. It's shared time and shared experiences strengthen relationships, And being together fosters discipleship. And being together promotes opportunities to practice the one another's of Scripture. Are you spending time together with others? Are you spending time together to point each other to Jesus? Are you regularly involved with families in this church that you can encourage each other in the Lord? Are you pursuing singles? Are you reaching out to college students? I mean, that's what the whole college fest is about. We're a family. You don't have a mom and dad in town. Come over to our house. We want to be together with you. Number seven, selling your possessions and sharing with others. The middle of 44 says they're together and had all things in common. Verse 45, they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now this is a legitimate sacrifice that Christians were making in order to care for one another. I mean, think about it. They're taking what they have and selling such and such thing so that they can give this so-and-so person. Just ask yourself, just think about that for a second. When's the last time you sold something so you could give the money to somebody else? Has it been a while? 
Maybe, maybe a better application could even be, why did you buy it to begin with? I mean, maybe we need to free up some more margin in our family budgets, not only that we give faithfully to the Lord out of our tithes and offerings, but we give above and beyond to a special benevolence need, a special missionary you want to support, the building fund that we're raising funds for to update our building. Maybe, maybe you don't even have to go get, 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 a, get a discount on your taxes. Maybe it could be an anonymous gift or cash that you give somebody else just because you want to. And it's a joy and a privilege. I mean, how convicting is that? They're selling property and giving to other people, and here we are just gathering more and more items, right? We need to be convicted this morning. I'm convicted this morning just reading this. The, the fact that these early Christians had all things in common does not mean they were living in a commune or totally given over to communism or socialism. But it does mean that they cared for one another. It does mean that they were willing to sacrifice for one another. They were willing to go without so that someone else could have their basic needs met. It does mean that they were not controlled by materialism, but a desire to give, to share, to take their resources and put it on the table and say, what is mine is yours. Is that your attitude in small group? A couple of chapters later in Acts 4, 34 and 35, there was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. You know, I talk to people sometimes, they're like, we need to be like the early church. I like to just take them right here. You willing to sell your house? You willing to sell this or that and give that money to, well, I, I mean, I, I don't, why, why should I do that? You said you want to be like the early church, right? That's part of it. Part of it is we live with this kind of mindset. I hope the small groups in our church would be generous and they would be giving and sharing with one another as we have need. Number eight, attending worship together to exalt Christ. And day by day, verse 46, attending the temple together. Love it, right? They're, they're coming to church together. They're, they're there together. They want to worship together. And notice it says in verse 46, day by day. doesn't say on the first day of the week. doesn't say on the Lord's day. Yes, that's important. Yes, we're here today. It's the Lord's day. We're here. But they were involved in a daily exercise of worship and teaching and outreach and fellowship and praying. And I'm saying being a part of a small group gives you the opportunity to encourage each other day by day. If you're just here on Sunday, then that's just one day a week you're doing that. But if you're involved in a small group, it gives you opportunity to consider how you may stir up one another to love and good deeds, not neglecting the meeting together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another in all the more as you see the day drawing near. You could do it at small group. You could do it at family night. You could help us with the Raise to Reach concert. Many opportunities around here. I hope that you'll be a part, not just here on Sunday. Number nine enjoying meals together in your homes. Now, this is the part, this is actually why I'm preaching the sermon. I said, aha, that's it, I got them now. Small groups take place because they're in each other's homes. So it started in church, remember, and I'm showing you throughout the progression here, they end up in each other's houses, eating, breaking bread. Here is not a reference to communion, I don't believe. I believe it's in their homes, the common meal that they would receive together as small group settings, whether it's formal or informal, right? The breaking of bread together is a great opportunity to share time together. That's what it's all about. 
It's, it's, it's not only sharing food in each other's homes, but my other proof text, if, if I can say it that way, of small groups is this, Acts 5.42. Look at it, if you will. Just a couple of chapters down, Acts 5.42. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. There you go, small groups right there. They're, eat, they're eating together. They're teaching together. That's a small group. That's something that God is glorified in. I know it doesn't have to all be formal at PBC, right? but I'm saying that somehow these principles need to be active in your life, and I think it's better and easier if you're in a small group structure than not. Number 10, receiving all things with thankfulness. The end of verse 46, they're receiving their food with glad and generous hearts. Philippians 4.4, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. There's lots of joy, lots of gratitude, lots of gladness. They've been generous together. They're enjoying that together. Number 11, praising God. Praising God together. The word praise means to speak of the excellence of a person. So when we praise God, we're speaking of his excellence. We're celebrating him. We're, we're telling through our singing and our, and our exhorting the wondrous deeds that magnify God and his divine attributes and his son, Jesus Christ, and yes, the Holy Spirit. I mean, one of the things I love doing in our small group is we sing together. I don't know what you guys do. We're not great singers, but we have a piano. And there are times we pull out the hymn book or other modern worship songs and we sing together. More times than that, we play it on the TV, and we go to some of those worship seed CDs for the kids, and we blast that in the house, and all the kids are singing, and sometimes we got the windows open, and I just wonder, what are my neighbors thinking right now? Because we're having church right now. We're just singing out. It's awesome. I love it. Praising him together is an incredible opportunity to do in small group. Number 12, and we're done, having favor with all people. They're praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. The word favor, the word grace, that God is blessing them. They're being sought in light. They even have favor from all the people. I think maybe we can include here John 13, 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That, that's what's going on here, and I pray that it would be evident that this is what we need to be as a church. We want to be like this. We need solid preaching. We need great worship. We need sacrificial giving. We need fellowship, prayer, missions, everything else we're doing. And that needs to start here and continue in our small groups. And so let me remind you that small groups are just a practical way to love Jesus more and to love each other more. And I would say this, change happens at close range. So if you want to change in your growth of being a Christian, it doesn't just come from studying the book, though it, that's primarily, I would say, yet. It comes from you fellowshipping and being in close range with other people that bring about change in you. That's what being married is all about. That's what having kids is all about. That's what being in a church is all about, that change happens best at close range. Let me say it this way. Powerful things sometimes come in little packages. One other way, big things happen in small groups. So if you're a Christian, I trust that you're experiencing this in your life or being exhorted to get this and apply this. If you're here and you're not a believer, then I want to call you this day to repent. 
Just as Peter preached this sermon, I call you this day to step out of darkness and out of legalism and out of any other faith and out of any other God and out of any other gospel and that you would come and recognize Jesus Christ is both Lord and God, that he has been raised from the dead, that he paid the penalty of sin and that you can enter into a relationship with him and as you have fellowship with him, to have true fellowship with others where you can experience the goodness of God through his word and through his fellow servants who circle around us and who help us live life for him. Look, if you're here, life is a mess. You can't do it on your own. But in Christ, you can be cleansed. You can be forgiven. And you can live the Christian life with brothers and sisters shoulder to shoulder. If you come to him today, he will by no means cast you out. If you come to our small groups and say, I, I, I just don't know what to think, then we will hold your hand and walk you through and help you get a better glimpse of the Savior. As we close that take-home section, just three quick questions. Do you see the benefit of how joining a small group will help you grow in your faith and practice? I mean, there's a lot of benefit here in Acts 2, and I hope that you'll see that much of this is trying to be applied. Again, I'm not saying that if you're not in small group, you're not a good Christian. I'm just saying this is a way not the way, it's a way that we're asking you to consider being a part. Those cards that I had you pull out earlier, I'm asking you to pick one of those groups and commit to it for a year and just say, you know what, I can be a part of that group for a year to see whether or not that I change and grow to be more like Jesus as a result of being with others, studying the word of God. Number two, do you see how while small groups are not the answer, they do augment spiritual growth and development? I mean, not every small group's perfect, Mine sure isn't, right? But at least we're trying to do these things. We're talking about scripture. We're praying together. It augments, helps us grow in our spiritual development. Number three, would you be willing to commit to a small group for this year so that you can both bless and be blessed? Listen to me. Don't be a lone ranger. Be part of a small group. The way you could do that today is that you could pull out your phone. You could go to placeridachurch.com and you will see a small group banner on the front of the website and you would click on that and all these small groups show up that are listed there on that card and you just pick one just say, you know what, let's try this. Hey, sweetie, let's try this one and see how it goes. Let's go visit this one. You could go sign up today out front. We're gonna be ending with a prayer in one minute and you could walk out these doors and they could help get you signed up on an iPad where you just commit to a small group for a year to see whether or not God uses that in your life to help you love him more and to love others more. This is our plea to you as a pastor and as an elder group. You know, we canceled Sunday night services a couple of years ago, and we canceled it for this reason. The elder team felt like, you know what, we can be more effective dividing and being in homes with people from our church, teaching the Bible, fellowshipping together, then we might be able to be on Sunday night. Let's cancel Sunday night with the intention of getting more people involved in small groups so that we can live out the Christian life. I hope that you've seen this morning that that is part of the signs of a healthy church. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for allowing us to look at Acts 2. Always such a blessing to see the tremendous outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And not only to be amazed at what you did, but to beg you to keep doing it in our hearts and in our lives. 
that we would be devoted to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of the bread and prayer and everything else we've talked about this morning. Oh God, we need a, a fresh touch from you. And it happens right here through the preaching of the word. And it happens every day as we're in the word, fellowshipping together, exhorting one another, breaking bread together, looking to Christ for that true Christian fellowship and so I pray, God, that you would use this message, this passage of Scripture, and flesh it out in our lives in a way that would bring you glory and praise. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.